Jesus when we walk through these truths. These truths that have uh, this base word, which means blessing. That God would bless his people. That God would say things to us. It's unique when we get to Matthew chapter 5. I want you to open your Bibles there. Each week we'll read together from these Beatitudes. And then we'll dive into one in particular. Matthew chapter 5. Picking up in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You're blessed when, you, when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we look at this text today, we're noticing the fourth beatitude. Or the second beatitude in verse 4 where Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's a philosopher named Aristotle. You may have heard of him. At one point, he said, Happiness depends on ourselves. And I think that if you have been around church long enough, you cringe at that very thought. You, that happiness would depend in and of yourself. However, whether we like it or not, this is subconsciously, it informs much of what we call Christianity uh, more than Jesus does. It's the thought of the natural man, and it's the fight that we have to fight each and every day of our lives. The idea that happiness would depend on ourselves. In this beatitude in particular, it says the world, this world that we're looking at. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. And when he says this, it is a very unique phrase because this phrase is uh, it's uncomfortable. There's an uncomfortable truth to the idea that we would ever find any type of joy whatsoever in, in mourning. That there's mourning that, that God would say to you and to me if we are a mourner. That you were fortunate. That happiness has been granted and given to you. Blessed, approved, and fortunate are those who are going through grief and trial. This is, in essence, saying you're on the right track if you're grieving. One pastor points out uh, this is the uh, equivalent of saying full are the, are the hungry, or healthy are the sick, alive are the dead. When we read through this text, we've got to be careful to consider all that we've learned from the entirety of Scripture. Whenever we look into the Beatitudes, we're coming at this message where Jesus has just ascended to the top of the hill and we have to consider what takes place when we're looking at Jesus uh, take steps. 
Now these are literal steps that are taken, but these are also, this is also language used by the gospel writer Matthew to echo something we see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see a place where God is at the top of Mount Sinai looking down, telling Moses, do not let the people come past this point, to the place where he would establish thunder and lightning and numerous other things that were frightening so that no one could cross over. He told them, if anything gets within any distance of me, I will kill it. He actually told Moses at one point, you can't even see me. You just get to, just to watch me as I go beside you from behind. God is letting us know something in this passage when we see Jesus ascending. We see Jesus moving upward. And as he moves upward, we are seeing him ascend. And then when he gets to the very top of the mountain, in the, at the ending of his ascent... He sits down. And when he sits down, he begins to tell people things that are unlike anything they've ever heard. If, you were, if you've been with us, if you were with us last Sunday, we looked at the crowd that happened to be there with Jesus. These poor fishermen, these poor shepherds, these families who were financially burdened and broken. And it's to this world that Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The base level for which we understand the entirety of the Beatitudes. God is about to give us a ladder that we in and of ourselves can't climb. He's about to give us expectations that only He can meet. He's about to say to us, this is who I am and this is who you are if you understand and grasp who I am. Deep joy is the word that's there. It's the original language, the word makarios. Uh, it's not the type of, of joy that we typically talk about. It's, it's a contrary idea. When, when we talk about the idea of blessed, we, we hashtag blessed things, we take the notion and we make it almost this notion of a wish that if you are blessed you're going to get what you want it's the idea of I am going to turn 16 years old that's a long time ago I got a new car when I'm 16 I am so blessed it's the notion that you find out from your job that you are getting a promotion you are so blessed you're going to full time day shift even better what a blessing to your wife. The idea of blessing that is based upon a circumstance. That's not what Jesus has in mind here. That's the original word, eudaimonia. It, it sounds like an infection. The word here is, is makarios. It's the deep joy of God. The deep joy of God has been revealed to those who are, who are blessed and who are in me, who are right because of me. You look at this text and you see God saying something to us about who he is. You're, you see God pointing out to each and every one of us who God is and how he has invited his people to interact with him. We look at this text and we keep in mind what we have already learned from Isaiah chapter 61. When you hear these common phrases of Yahweh. You hear these words of Jesus echoed in this messianic promise where it says the spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. He has sent me to pro proclaim freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance. And he has sent me to comfort those who mourn. Mourn in both instances is an active concept. It's an active verb. And not only that, it's the strongest word for grief in the entirety of the Bible. 
that God would say deep joy is for those who mourn. So if we're looking at a text like this, I want us to make sure that we have some clear boundaries to understand what's taking place. And we're going to look at the holistic picture of the teaching of Scripture about the idea of mourning and blessedness and comfort and how those things are swimming together and swirling together to give us something to understand about our good God. Let me give these to you. The first thing we would write down is that the world is broken. The world is broken. Not only is the world broken, I am broken. Finally, wholeness is in God alone. One more time. The world is broken. I am broken. And wholeness is in God alone. I'm going to pray for us as we dive into this. Jesus, we thank you so much for the chance that we have to meet with you this morning. We thank you that you would say things to us about deep joy and what it means for us to have a deep God-given joy. What it means for us to wrestle with being your people. What it means for us to grasp that you have called us to an inversion of all of uh, our current realities, truths. You've called us to see the, the, your actual truth in the midst of what is just um, faux truth. So as we look into this concept today of deep joy for those who mourn, I pray that we will see that there is comfort in and only in you. We ask this in Jesus' name, and everybody in the room says, Do you consider yourself sentimental? You can be honest with me. If you are sentimental, could you raise your hand? If you are unsentimental, is that even a word? Could, we, could you raise your hand? Okay. We had a yard sale years ago. We'd invited uh, another family to be part of it with us. If you've never done a yard sale, basically you do 48 hours work for $36.47. That's how yard sales uh, work for us. These friends wanted to do it at our house because they did not want to deal with the actual work of doing it at their house. And these are just realities, and we need to make sure that we proclaim reality. This friend's wife uh, opened the back of her minivan and she began to pull things out of the van that she wanted to sell. Uh, one of the things that they wanted to sell was attached to their children. Like, not literally attached, but it was a memory from that child when they were around eight, nine months old. And the dad had a really hard time letting go of this thing. Letting go of a stroller that the child would never, ever use again. Letting go of a stroller that someone could take and push their uh, small, small dog around a trail in. Letting go of this. Sentimentality is such a, a weird concept. My friend Kevin, uh, was one of, he was my best friend in high school and much of college. We're still friends. and uh, He was at my grandmother's house with me. My grandmother made cake because she always made cake. And, she, and as we were eating the cake, he was looking for a, a fork or a knife that was made of plastic. He found one in a drawer, found a package of purple cutlery. He opened it without asking me if it was okay, and he started to eat. I told him that that was from my grandmother's uh, mother's funeral, and he began to choke on his cake. Uh, that was not true at all. They didn't even have plastic cutlery back then. But I felt the need to do that to him. Maybe, just maybe, you've got a sentimental dish in your china cabinet. One that was passed down to you from generation to generation. Imagine as you're cleaning up for Christmas, putting out the decor, the garland, the fake cranberries. I 
guess you put out cranberries at Christmas. Imagine that it breaks and it shatters everywhere. Shards of glass everywhere you look. And as you look around, you don't know what to do with that. It is into this world that Jesus walks to the top of a hill. A hill that is wrong. A hill that knows that everything taking place in their midst is wrong. A hill where he looks at a people who are grieving, grieving over their financial position, grieving over their, uh, th- their economic situation, grieving over possibly loss of loved ones. It's at that place that Jesus looks and he said, blessed are those who mourn. People who are seeking to hold on to things, people who have this attachment This is sentimentality of the brokenness of the world. We even say it. I'm attached very much to my own childhood in churches from different traditions. There's a great chance at some point you've considered the idea of mourning in regard to being a Christian. If you've ever been around children's ministry, whether it was Awanas or Royal Ambassadors or Vacation Bible School, if there's ever been a point where you ask children to memorize verses in exchange for candy... There is a great chance, 78% chance, that the first verse that a child would ever memorize was this one. John chapter 11, verse 35, where we have two words where Jesus wept. We see Jesus weep three times in the scripture as we consider mourning. We see Jesus mourn when he goes to the grave of his friend Lazarus. Walking in, accused by both sisters of of not being there on time. We see Jesus look over the city of Jerusalem. It says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. The first case, for whatever reason, that is the idea of of a deep, shaking grief. It's inner. The second, the idea of him weeping over Jerusalem is this loud wailing. With the third time we see Scripture point to the idea of Jesus weeping, it takes place in the garden. But Hebrews is where we remember it. Hebrews tells that he offered up prayers and supplications through tears. These tears that Jesus would shed over this world would point to the idea that the world is broken. That it has been dropped and shattered and the pieces have spread and sprung everywhere that they could. There's nowhere that you step where you will not be cut by the brokenness of the world. In Jesus, we see that he is saying to us as he weeps with Lazarus, as he weeps over Jerusalem, as he weeps over the sin in our worlds, as he weeps over what we see taking place in the book of Hebrews, when Jesus looks at all of the brokenness of the world shattered everywhere, he weeps because this is not the way the world is supposed to be. He weeps because of what we call the fall. He weeps. As creation groans in Romans chapter 8 over the brokenness of the world. In Jesus, when we look at him, we see what the kingdom is in every ounce of its fullness and what that looks like. But yet we look and apart from Jesus, we can actually see what the world is. And Jesus looked into that world and saw what it actually was. The world was broken. And I think that it is healthy and helpful for us to acknowledge the brokenness of the world. Whenever we use words in these, in these Beatitudes, Jesus is entering us into a conversation where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He has given us a window through the word poor. 
Because all of us have some small concept of what poverty is. He gives us another window when he uses the word mourn. Because all of us have a sense of what it means to mourn over something. These are ways that we can access the text. And it is important for us to see the spiritual place that Jesus is taking us, but we cannot overlook the portal by which he's taking us there. The notion of poverty, the notion of mourning, the notion of hurt, the notion of pain. There's a missionary named Paul Brand. He was also a surgeon. He was born in India. He, he did pioneer work with a disease called Hansen's disease. And at one point in his research, when he moved to America, he said this about our current situation. If you would ever like to consider what it means to have a hashtag first world problem, I states, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at greater comfort level than any that I had previous, previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. The world is broken and we like to turn a blind eye to it. Even as Christians, hopefully, we, we will see that we are moving in a direction where we would see and acknowledge that the brokenness of the world is here. John Piper says this, Occasionally, here's what we should do. We should look at our world and we should weep deeply over the life that you hoped it would be. Grieve the losses. Feel the pain. Then wash your face. Trust God. And embrace the life that he's actually given to you. The world is broken. And I don't think that any of us could ever look around and see the poverty in our midst. See the sickness in our midst see the, the warring factions in our midst and not acknowledge that the world is broken where this begins to be a struggle is when this portal takes us not to the outward experience of the broken world but to the inner experience of broken you and broken me not only is the world broken I am broken I am broken. And that truth is worth our mourning. It is not enough for us to look and see that we have a china dish that has been shattered all over our home. I am broken because of sin. And though the world is broken, my sin is a result and a continuation of that very fracture. It has spread all over the kitchen, all over the house, all over the world. One writer, Jonathan Dotson, says this, Real grief is not to only consider the sin committed against us. We consider the sin that is committed by us. That I have sin in me that is going to cause me to do things that are not pleasant to God that do not bring pleasure to him. In our good crisis, he goes on to say, outrage flares up at those who do wrong outside of us. Anybody ever felt that? Someone wrongs you? You feel uncomfortable? You're frustrated by their presence? This morning, when I showed up at church, 6.15, there was a man walking across the parking lot with a boombox on his shoulder. I had no idea why he had that boombox, but it was loud enough for me to hear in my office. And outrage flared. Flared. Why is that man with a boombox? It is the year of our Lord, 2021. Get that man an earbud. 
But we have a much higher tolerance for the rebellion inside each of us. In Colossians, Paul says this about the broken nature of you and of me. He, he says that outside of God's reconciliation, you were alienated from God, you were hostile toward God, and you were doing evil actions. And because of our lack of really realization as to our sin, we begin to tell ourselves that we're good people. And, and hear me when I say this, if we comfort ourselves by our own goodness, we kind of miss what the gospel actually is. The good news of Jesus is not that I'm a good person who God makes better, it's that I'm a dead person that God makes alive, alive that I'm a wicked person that, that God has uh, shown mercy and grace to. If that's not enough for you, and if you say, well, I get what Paul says on the front side of my Christianity, but I am a sinner saved by grace. I sang that song that Mike made us sing earlier. I believe all of these things about me in the person of Jesus. Paul goes on to say that I get that, but I, I come alongside of you, and I understand your struggle. I understand your hardship. I know what you're walking through. When he says this to us from Romans chapter 7, he says, For I know that nothing good lives in me. That is it in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me. You may feel that. But, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do. But I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now if I do what I want. Do, if I do what I do not want. I'm no longer the one that does it. But it's the sin that lives in me. So I discover the law. When I want to do what is good. Evil it's present in me. For in my inner self I delight in God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and, talk, and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? What a question. I do what I don't want to do. I, I, I don't do what I want to do. The tension of being a believer in this broken world. Still infected, affected by the shards of sin. Jesus has made you whole. Understand that. That's what the scriptures teach us. But yet we walk in a world that is continually uh, affecting us in a way that is contrary to how God would have us to live. When Jesus uses these words of comfort and mourn, he is again taking us to what we see in that Isaiah passage. Again, taking us the idea that he would be the one who brings comfort to the mourner. That he will be the one that brings a, a strong place to stand for those, those who are hurting. If you'll know, notice in the scriptures, however, we never notice Jesus calling anyone a sinner. You see that? Jesus, when he walks into places, does not say, you're a sinner. His very presence brings sin to light. And when his presence brings sin to light, people are going to respond in one of three ways. So some of them are going to respond by looking at Jesus and they're going, to, uh, they're going to rage against him. We have multiple examples of that in the Pharisees. Oil, you've got the story of the rich young ruler that Jesus said, just sell all your stuff and follow me. He said, I'm good. And he went away sad. Or those who repent. Only one of those three have experienced what we could call a godly form of grief. Because godly, godly grief, according to Paul in Corinthians, is the grief that leads to salvation. It's a grief that takes us to be people who are more and more like God. It's a grief that takes us to the idea that, that our mourning has a point. 
That we are not people who simply say this whole world is messed up. But we realize that we're part of that. And that the hope that we have in the midst of that did not come from within ourselves. It came from outside of us. We notice in the scripture that there's mourning that is natural and that's grieving over loss. However, there is mourning that is spiritual that we should not overlook because this passage where Jesus gives us this window into what mourning is, he actually takes us to this bigger place because he doesn't just want that to be a window that's a wall. He wants it to be more. He wants us to see the natural concept that mourning over broken things would take us to see that our God is whole. Spiritual grieving, it's grieving over our sin against God. It's just present tense verb. How in the world do I move to being a person who is spiritually mourning? Seeing, like we talked about last week, that the poverty of spirit that Scripture points out is present. Like, I know that I'm bankrupt apart from God and that my enoughs will never be enough. And I mourn over that very fact. Do I mourn over my sin? My continual state of sin? And if our, if our concept of Christianity is, I was a sinner, and now on this side of my sin, I've got everything figured out. That is the exact same as the, as the types of gospels that we judge from all over the country, sometimes up to 88. The idea that I can do things, make God happy by my behavior... That's not mourning over your brokenness or mourning over mine. That's me finding pleasure in me. Happy are the sad. Blessed are the brokenhearted. You you see these things here. Jesus in this passage is pointing us to the idea of what it means to be his people. What it means to grasp his comfort, his wholeness. Blessed are those who mourn. Not just those who mourn over the general state of things, but mourn over their sinful contribution to it. Mourn over the sin that has affected not just them, but everyone around them. Blessed are those who get that. As God gives us this ladder we can't climb. Because they will be comforted. Last week we're talking in the present tense. There's, mine is the kingdom of heaven. I, I know, I see what kingdoms look like. I will be comforted? That's your promise for me, God. Comfort. It's the worry. It's the notion of strength. We find ourselves in the midst of our mourning being strangely strengthened. Wholeness is finally found in God alone. We notice that once we realize the broken nature of the world, we not only notice that, we notice the broken nature of our very selves. Those who are comforted are those who find that wholeness, the putting back together of the shards, the, re- com- the, com- the completion is found in what God has done for us. I will be made whole and nothing in this world will help that to be accomplished. Comfort. It's heaven. Um, it's heaven that... We see God, but it's not just that. It's the idea that we will eventually spend eternity with God, comforted in His presence, but it's noticing and knowing that His comfort is, we get hints of it in this world. C.S. Lewis says this, Heaven once attained, 
will work backward and it will turn every it will turn even our agony into glory. God promises us comfort, but he did not promise that he will that that comfort will come from human beings. I think that we look for that at times. I I've had the the privilege and the honor and the and the sad um, realization of doing numerous funerals for my loved ones, for loved ones of, of church members, for loved ones of friends and family. And, and I've noticed this consistent theme that there are people initially who are around you that will say, you know, if you need anything, just let me know. I'm a phone call away. And, and we'll bring, uh, we will call people and text people initially. And then there will be points where we show up with lasagnas. And in the midst of all of this, there comes a point where the texts stop and the phone calls stop because life gets busy and you're left there to deal with your grief. To deal with the idea there has to be comfort that comes from somewhere. Not only that, the idea of finding comfort in another human being, to seek to find your Jerry Maguire completion, that's a dated reference, but you know what I'm talking about because I know you people. In another human being, that is a symptom of our situation. For me to seek to find my completion in another person is a symptom of our situation. It is not the solution. I think my wife is the best human being on earth. She deals with me and she deals with four people to whom I contributed DNA. And she sat in a hospital room with me while my dad was passing away. And in that moment, she, she didn't say, I'm going to be the one who, who makes this right. She pointed me to the one who does. If our spouses cannot be the one who completes us fully, what phone call or text message or lasagna or whatever blank you want to fill in do you think will do that? If a person can't, who can? In this life, there are those who trust in Jesus and, they, and Jesus gives us a, the promise of the presence of a comforter. It's the word that's used in this beatitude for comfort is a word that... It's, it's where we get the word Holy Spirit or paraclete. It's the one who is our representation. It's, it's us being reminded that when God is with us, He is with us through it all, in it all, for it all. It's God being with us in our, in our victories on our mountaintops. It's God being with us in the valley. It's God being with us in the depths. It's God being with us in, in, the, in the highest of heights. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon... Even there, your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. This is the God who promises to be a comfort for you in this life, moving you to a time where you will find utter, ultimate comfort. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit there for us. It's this soldier word that's there, to be comforted. It's a word that's used in military situations where you would get everyone motivated and rah-rah to go into battle. It's God saying, I will never stop being there for you. It's a comfort that comes with strength. We, it's a place where we find ourselves strangely strengthened. Because God has promised to do what nothing in this world can. The loss of his son. One philosopher said this about the mourners. And who we are. And it's lengthy, but I want to read this over us because it will help us to grasp more and more as to where these Beatitudes are taking us. 
this ladder that we cannot climb that God has said, I've climbed for you. It's the idea of God inviting us to be part of this right relationship with Him where we understand the deep joy of His presence in the face of sorrow, pain, brokenness, financial despair. It's the idea of God being on the side of the persecuted. It's the idea of God being for the, the, those who are hurting. Who then are the mourners? The mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day. Who ache with all their being for that day's coming. And who break out into tears when confronted with its absence. The mourners are those who realize that in God's realm of peace, there is no one blind who, and who ache whenever they see someone unseen. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm, there is no one hungry who ache whenever they see someone starving. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm, there is no one falsely accused and who ache whenever they see someone imprisoned unjustly. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm there is no one who, fall, who fails to see God and who ache whenever they see someone unbelieving. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm there is no one who suffers oppression and who ache whenever they see someone beat down. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm there is no one without dignity and who ache whenever they see someone treated with indignity. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace, there is neither death nor tears, and who ache whenever they see someone in this life crying tears over death. The mourners are aching people with a vision of God. Would we be people who mourn over our current situation, the crisis around us? The world is broken, that we are part of that brokenness, and that only Jesus makes us whole. And would we come alongside of God as a reflection of his comfort. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, we are um, continuing this consideration of how you have in Jesus turned the world inside out. And God, I pray that we will get a glimpse of your kingdom vision. That you've rewritten the way... That you've rewritten, God, the world. And you've said, this is the way that things should be. But we thank you that we have a Savior who mourned. Who mourned over death. Who mourned over sickness. Who mourned over sorrow. We thank you that Jesus would declare that... The broken, shattered nature of the world is not the way that things are supposed to be. So, Father, as we sing to you, I pray that this, these words, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That somehow this truth will resonate with us in a way that we did not expect when we walked in here at 1025 on a Sunday morning. And I pray that the, the weight of the deep joy that you've offered us will keep us moving forward as an encouragement in the brokenness of the world. Deep, God-given joy. 
We ask this in your name. If you're with, if you need me, I'm in the back right hand.